All right, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I hope, um, we have, uh, we're in Psalm 5 this morning. Uh, if you don't, the, the words will be on the screen, uh, but I encourage you to bring a physical copy with you, even if that's digital, uh, but uh, bring a physical copy with you so you can follow along and you can see where the things that I say come from and check them and make sure. I uh, don't just take my word for it, but double check things from Scripture. But let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word now from Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield." Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, what sometimes what we read it can be difficult, it can be hard to read, uh, and sometimes I'm sure we kind of just run past it. Lord, help us as we look at this text. Lord, your spirit needs to be at work, must be at work for us to understand it, for me to explain it well. Lord, if there are things that I, that I say that are off from what is true and good and right, I pray that people would not hear, that you would correct it. Lord, do empower me this morning to speak your truth and soften our hearts and Open our ears and our eyes to see what you have for us today. We desperately need you. We pray this for your glory, Lord, for our good, and that we may rejoice. In Christ's name, amen. So obviously this morning we continue in our series in the Psalms, and we do so with Psalm 5. One of the beauties of the Psalms, one of the things that I've really loved over the years is that they do not shy away from the pain and the difficulty of life. As I believe it was Calvin called it, the anatomy of the soul. It truly is an anatomy of the soul. You will find the range of emotions and pain and difficulty in the Psalms. And as they address these matters, they, they do so not just to, to tell us, but they do it in an instructive manner, to teach, to direct us, to show us how to live. Now, for example, I, th I think we all know, um, at least to some degree, what it feels like to have wicked people around us. 
Perhaps those who lie and are deceitful. Perhaps you've been lied about. Somebody's sought to be deceptive around you. And it can be a struggle at times to figure out how to respond to that situation. You know, maybe we have a tendency to, to lash out in return and, and defend ourselves and our honor, and we, we rear up kind of thing, and we, and we just fight back really hard. Maybe we just walk away and withdraw into ourselves and hole up and forget about it, which honestly, you never really forget about it when you do that. And what happens then is we become bitter over the situation. You know, the old saying, it's like um, eating rat poisoning, hoping it will kill the rat. Uh, it, it doesn't work. It can be painful and confusing and burdensome to deal with those who have been wicked and deceitful. And it's a lamentable situation. And guess what? The Psalms are filled with laments. They are weighted heavily toward lament. The, the, the first book of the Psalms, the, 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 after Psalm 2, you, you're weighted on laments. Overall, they outnumber any other type in the book of Psalms. The, 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 they're Psalms that express sorrow and pain and confusion and distress over something that just isn't right, over evil, over life not being the way it's supposed to be. And their prayers. They are examples of a believer taking his or her thoughts, their emotions and struggles to the Lord. Now, when I think about the, the book of Psalms as a whole, um, this is one way that's been helpful to, to categorize the Psalms. And as you read through them, there's three big categories that you can look at. And, and I think it's helpful to look at it this way. There's first the orientation Psalms. Orientation is praise, hymns, all is going well. They're exuberant. Then you have disorientation. All is not well. These are the laments, uh, even the imprecations that you find in the Psalms and others. And then you have reorientation. It's thanksgiving. Things are looking up. They're returning to where they should be. Now, Psalm 5 obviously fits into that category of disorientation. And, and a lot of it feels like it, but some of it, you're, you're like, I, I'm not sure this feels like a lament because there's actually a good bit of confidence in this psalm. But that is actually part of a lament. The laments have a trajectory, all but one, move from this lamentation into praise and into confidence. And so this psalm actually continues in many ways from Psalm 4. If you want to hear more about Psalm 4, I preached on that last summer. Um, it was a psalm for the evening. Um, and it was, so it was an evening prayer, verse 6 or verse 8 of Psalm 4. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, the psalmist was able to lie down and rest because of God. And Psalm 5 then picks up in the morning with a prayer. And it's a prayer not in, um, that's uh, in spite of the fact that the psalmist was able to sleep soundly and lay down and rest in the sovereignty of God, but he actually prays because he was able to sleep soundly and rest in the sovereignty of God, because he trusts in God's sovereignty, because God is good and sovereign, David can go to him with what is wrong. Truly, God is the only one to go to in our pain and our trouble. 
But this idea of lament, sadly, I think the American, the, the Western, the, the affluent church has lost it. We don't talk about laments. We don't sing them. Um, you know, the, the, the hit songs on, you know, K-Love, they're not laments. And it's costly. One commentator wrote this. He said, the, the laments represent the believers taking initiative with God thus avoiding the development of a false self that simply accepts passively every circumstance that comes along. The laments represent the simple observation that life isn't right, thus raising the issue of justice and, again, avoiding a passivity that simply accepts or reinforces the status quo. In theological terms, the laments represent the conviction that God is not the silent guarantor of the status quo. But rather, God can be addressed in risky ways as the transformer of what has not yet appeared. We don't want to accept passively what's going on, and the laments tell us, take that to God. Pray. Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart before Him. We have a lot to learn from laments. There's much that we are taught in pain and sorrow and injustice and in the presence of evil. And as we learn from the psalm, we will see it's a prayer. When we look at it here, it's, it's, it's one extended prayer, but it kind of falls in two parts. It's broken up in that way. And I know last week I told you, look at the strophes, that fancy word for a grouping of lines. And there's um, five of them. We're not going to have five points. We're just going to have two. So I'm actually going to break this down into two instead of five. I think it actually flows a little bit better. And both parts of the prayer begin with a request, and then they give, then reasons are listed as to why that request is made. So my prayer is this morning that we would learn from a lament. We would possibly learn how to lament and how to respond to the evil that is around us and even the evil that is in us. And that we would do that in relationship with the sovereign king who reigns. So the first part of the prayer falls in verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. And the request is found right away in these first two verses. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. Here's the invocation. It's the, it's the petition that he makes for support. And this isn't some perfunctory prayer that he's just going through. This is actually deeply felt. It, this prayer has welled up from what he's experienced. And in Hebrew, it actually begins with, My words, make them, hear them, Lord. My words. And we don't speak like that in English, so it turns around. But the idea is that I need you to hear me, God. I desperately need you to hear me. It speaks to the seriousness of this. He wants God to consider, to, to take into account his groaning. And when you hear that, when you hear that phrase, consider my groaning, here's something about the Psalms. You need to slow down and picture that. Let that image come into your mind. What do you picture when you hear, consider my groaning? meant to engage our emotions, our mind's eye, engage all of us. I, I hear this low murmur, oh, uh, 
coming from someone in pain and distress. The person making the noise is strained. They're, they're having difficulty. And not only consider my groaning, but consider the repetition here of this plea. David doesn't merely say it once. He says, give ear, consider, give attention to. This is more the beauty of poetry. The, the repetition is there to emphasize, to call attention to the level of discomfort, to the intensity of the plea. David's voicing his pain and frustration. And you know, not only is he voicing it to the Lord, but as a side benefit, that, there's actually a catharsis to that. Rather than keeping it holed up inside, there's a bit of catharsis. But now I want you to look at that second line of verse 2. David is calling on my king and my God. It's actually a pretty important line because it tells us what David believes, what drives him. He's been shaped by the covenant relationship with, with the Lord. He has been adopted. And as king, he experienced this in a, in a very real and tangible way. As he heard, as we saw in Psalm 2 last week, the word of the Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He was entered into a special relationship as king. But the reality is, is every believer in Christ is adopted as a son of the, God, of the Lord of the universe. We are sons, we are heirs, we are sons and daughters of the living God. And so it is that God, that one who has shown great love and care and mercy, the one to whom He prays, that's the one to whom He looks for help, my King and my God. And from there, we move into David's reasons. He says, for to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning, hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And we'll stop at that point for the moment. When you read the word for, especially as you go through Scripture, that's signaling to you, here, here comes the reasons for what was said before. You know, um, I made a sandwich for or because I was hungry. You know, it's telling you why something happened. And so the first and foremost reason that he says, hear me, is because he actually prays. <laughs> you can't say, hear me, if you're not praying. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds simple, but he says that's the first reason. He prays. He's not turning elsewhere. He's not hedging his bets and deciding, well, you know, Baal might be pretty good, so I'll go to him or whatever else. He is praying to his king and his God. He's actively seeking help and refuge where it can be found. He's articulating his dependence on the divine king, and he expresses this dependence first thing, in the morning. When he awakes, he awakes from that safe sleep that the Lord provided for him. He says, I will make my voice heard. And that phrase, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, there's actually no word for sacrifice in, in Hebrew. If you read a different translation, it might say, I, I order my prayer to you. And it's either way is, is perfectly valid. Actually, Psalm 141.2 says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So, using the language of sacrifice for our prayers is very valid. It's very cons um, consistent. So, what he's saying is, O oh Lord, in the morning, I will pray. 
And he offers it, and then he watches. He waits eagerly, expectantly. You know, when you order that thing from Amazon that you really want, and you check and see, like, oh, expected delivery between 11 and 1. You know, I can't tell you how many times my kids, or maybe even me, have just walked by. Was that the Amazon truck? You hear it go by, kind of thing. You're expectant of what's to come. And so we need to be expectant. Psalm 130 I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This eagerness is watching. It's a sign of confidence in, the, in his prayer. And part of his confidence and that David has here flows from the fact that he is not unrepentantly wicked. That's part of his confidence. He's humble. He is taking refuge in the Lord, and he does so in prayer, not once, but morning by morning. Continually, he comes before the Lord. And this is something for us to think about. I think it's vital. You know, statistics these days have, uh, studies have, have shown that those people who have smartphones, which I, I dare say is probably 90% in this room, if not more, Most folks begin their day by picking up and looking at their smartphone. Texts, email right away, the news, social media, all of it. And one thing is, studies have shown that's actually not good for your brain. Our brain waves need a time of of rest, and it's not good to do that. It actually leads to you being more distracted throughout the rest of the day. Because your phone is nothing but constant stimulation. And so picking up a newspaper and reading it, you're like, eh, I read a, paper, uh, you know, a sentence and I'm done. You can't do the long form. It's harder. But second, folks, what we start the day with quite often reflects our priorities. David started with prayer. Can we learn from that? I know not everyone's a morning person. That's okay. (laughs) But everyone who's here got out of bed this morning. And when you roll out, don't grab the phone. You have to flop onto the floor on your knees and just pray for a, a minute or two just to set the priorities. And put your phone on downtime so you can't even open it up until like nine in the morning or something. But let's, let's think about what are our priorities? What are we going to start the day with? To what are we, on what are we going to depend? Technology and information or the sovereign king of the universe? Well, let's move to David's further reasoning in verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, in a lot of ways, what David is doing here is he's distinguishing himself from the wicked. He's giving reasons why the Lord should hear his cry. He's rehearsing to God the nature of God and that God does not delight in wickedness. In fact, he hates it. David moves through a catalog of sinners. He actually moves kind of from this general to the specific, from the wicked to the, those who are liars and deceitful. And he reminds himself of how God views sin, how intensely he views it. 
Now, what when we read through verses 4 through 6, one of the things this should do is make us more intensely aware of the nature of sin. One commentator wrote, if you are drawing close to God, you will become increasingly sensitive to sin, which is inevitable since the God you are approaching is a holy God. We need this sensitivity. H.C. Leupold was thinking along these lines when he wrote, prayers of this kind may have more value than our age is inclined to admit. He explains, they are surely born out of a deep sense of the sinfulness of sin and out of the conviction that the only one who can stem the tide of sin is the Almighty. The sinfulness of sin. Because we must be honest, folks, we are all sinful. We are all in that same boat. Dane Ortland wrote a follow-up to the book Gentle and Lowly, a book called Deeper. And he wrote this, uh, we'll come to the quote here in just a second, but he said, our minds and hearts have been infected. We crave the forbidden. We celebrate others' misfortune. We hoard rather than give. In short, we construct our entire lives around the throne of self. Romans 3 captures this in the way it speaks of sin infecting every part of the physical body. And then he says that fallen humans are factories of filth. You know, Calvin said, our hearts are idle, are factories of idols. It's the same idea. The Apostle Paul quotes the second half of, of verse, um, what is it, uh, of verse 5 um, in Romans 3, to include us all in the sinfulness of humanity. We are all lumped together. We are not better than anyone else. And you know what? God hates sin. How could a holy and perfect God do otherwise? How could He take delight in what is wicked? How could He take delight in what damages the image of God? But yet, we don't hate sin the same way. We just don't. In fact, we often just slough it off like it's no big deal. James Boyce wrote, we take sin too lightly. If we did not, we would not sin as grievously or as frequently as we do. We've become desensitized to sin. It's all around us. It's in us. It's on our screens constantly. That's another reason to put down your phone, probably. Sin is portrayed as natural or neutral or even good. We're called to celebrate sin of others. It's just not a big deal. We often rationalize and say things like, well, you know what? We've heard it before. I've seen it before. It doesn't bother me. Really? You may not be tempted to, to drop an F-bomb here and there, but you keep listening to it and you're desensitized. You forget how this, this is an affront to God's holiness. Because, I mean, look at verse 5 again. You know how a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. You hate all evildoers. Folks, that's a hard word. Tell you, I, I have not slept as well because of this psalm. That's not what we hear today, is it? Not from somebody we want to hear it, you know, the person who's, 
got a sign and just screaming at people. We're like, what a kook. What we hear today is God hates the sin but loves the sinner, right? The trouble is, I can't find that in Scripture. Not in that way. It's, it's just, but I can find this, Psalm 11.5, the Lord attests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Listen, God hates sin. He hates evildoers. They destroy His work. They, they fight against His holiness, His goodness, His grace, and His mercy. And there is a tension here. I know that. Okay, and sometimes we have a hard time living in tension because we are unequivocally told to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love our enemies. And we're called to delight ourselves in the Lord and to not be intimately associated with sinners and scoffers and the wicked. And to fear the Lord, we must hate evil. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. See, our call is to holiness. We are not sovereign. We don't know what's going on in everyone's heart. We should hate the evil. I don't actually believe, and I'm still, like I said, I've wrestled through this. I don't believe we're called to hate people. Because Scripture calls us very clearly, love your enemies, love your neighbors. But we ought to hate the evil that is done and hate what it's doing to those made in the image of God. That much I know. And we must also understand that God does hate. He knows full well. He is sovereign. We're called to despise sin because of what sin is. And not only will sin be judged, but the reality is is unrepentant sinners will be judged too. This is not an Old Testament thing. Read Revelation. Read the New Testament. You'll see it. But here's where I want us to get is the more we understand this, we understand the nature of sin, then will we begin to grasp the nature of God's grace. and His mercy that is shown to you and me, to sinners. See, David grasped it. Look at verse 7. But, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David's not saying, but I am so much better than those wicked scumbags. He's saying, in many ways, he's saying, I am one of those wicked scumbags, but through your steadfast love, I'll enter your house. Through your mercy, That's the only way we enter the house because David was certainly an evildoer at times, wasn't he? Bathsheba, taking another man's wife, killing her husband, lying to the entire nation, all kinds of things. David David ran through the gamut of the Ten Commandments pretty well. But he also knew the character of God, that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And he repented When he was confronted by Nathan, he repented. 
And he believed God. And he will enter the house of God, whereas if you back up to verse 4, it says, no evil may dwell with you, but he'll enter the house. The righteous who are righteous through the steadfast love of God will enter his house. Let's, let's, let's move on to the second part of the prayer. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Here the focus is that David would be led by the Lord. He knows his own propensity to sin. He also knows that sometimes the, the lifestyle of the wicked, it's tempting. It's tempting in our lives. And he wants and longs for his way to be made straight by the Lord, to not stray from here to there, to not be tossed to and fro all over the place. This, he, he's, he longs to follow the way of the righteous rather than the way of the wicked that Psalm 1-6 talks about. Psalm 27-1, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Because unless God bestows wisdom and guidance, it is easy to be entangled by the snares of our enemies. And our prayer must be the same. Lord, keep my feet firm and steady. Keep it on the straight path of righteousness. You know, we don't ask, oh Lord, how close to sin can I get and still be okay? <laughs> our ask is, Lord, help me stay as close to this path as possible to reflect your goodness and glory our need for grace is dire. We are desperate for it. And then David gives further reasoning, verses 9 and 10, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David continues to to show the nature of the wicked, those who speak lies, they, they speak no truth at their very heart. Their deepest self is destruction. Now, look at that phrase, their throat is an open grave. That's another image that calls us to think about it. Now, we also have to think about it in context of that time frame, because if you think open grave today, you're like, okay, they're just like, there's a six-foot hole and they're waiting to put someone in it. That's not the context here. What this brings out, as I think about it, is a foul stench. Why do you think when Jesus told people, you know, open the, open the tomb and Lazarus is going to come out, and the response is, Jesus, it's been four days. Because no one wants to get that waft coming towards them. That foul stench, that it just... Uh, you know, you want to gag from it. And they're saying, that's, their th that's what comes out of their mouths. The words that they speak are a foul stench. And they consume everything around them. Their words bring death. So these wicked use all the resources of speech for wickedness, and it reflects their hearts. And in many ways, you know what it reflects? The tactics of the serpent in the Garden of Eden who worked by deceit and lies. So David continues here to lay out 
the nature of his enemies. He's building a case, and what he longs for is God's mercy for him as one oppressed by the wicked. And he, he's confident here. John Calvin wrote, he said, and this is to be particularly attended to, that the more our enemies manifest their cruelty against us or the more wickedly they vex us, we ought with so much the greater confidence to send up our groanings to heaven because God will not suffer their rage to proceed to the uttermost, but will bring forth their malice and wicked devices to the light. We should have, the, the more we see the wicked, the more we, what our response should be is, go groan to the Lord in confidence. Because if anyone hates wickedness, it's God. He hates wickedness and sin way more than you and I do. And folks, we may not have evil people tangibly against us right now, but the wicked are prospering, and overall, they are against God and His people. And so let that lead us to groaning prayers, prayers for justice, prayers for mercy and grace, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's praying, Lord, deal with those who are fighting against you. And the prayer is really convert or deal with them according to your sovereignty. And this leads us further into David's prayer. He longs for justice. David is not calling for vengeance here, not personal vengeance at all, but he's calling for justice that the guilty, that the unrepentant would fall by their own devices. I just read Esther not too long ago in my Bible reading, and it pictures Haman being hung on the own, his own gallows that he designed for Mordecai. He fell by his own devices from the hidden hand of God. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And then look at the last two verses here. But... Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Here's, here's the confidence. Here's the, the movement of the lament to confidence. David's closing, it's, it's his desire, the result of his prayer, and that is that all those who seek protection in the Lord, who seek refuge, the, the shelter, the grace, and mercy of the Lord would rejoice and ever sing for joy because they have the Lord of the universe as their protector, as their God. Even in the midst of broken and sinful world in which we live, the believer can rejoice and sing. We've rejoiced and sang this morning, and we live in a broken and sinful world. We deal with the brokenness and sin in our own lives. But the believer is protected, is sheltered, is shielded by the Lord, is blessed, is covered with favor as with a shield. So then just wrapping up, what does this psalm teach us? It teaches us a lot. I've just got two thoughts here. You see, David is assaulted by evildoers. So what does he do? He prays. He goes to his king and his God. He rests in who God is and his holiness 
wisdom, justice, goodness, and truth. He turns to God as his refuge. He believes Psalm 2.12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. He believes it, and he acts on that belief. David confidently went before the Lord and prayed. He was confident of God's steadfast love. He continued to pursue that. May we be those who continue to pursue and rest in God as our refuge. But further, we're reminded vividly that sin is wicked and evil is damaging. And our God hates sin. He's holy. Sin is a corruption of His good creation. Here's the hang-up. We're sinners. (laughs) So where's our hope? Where is our hope if God is going to destroy all evildoers? Where is our hope? But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's our hope. And it is a sure hope. It is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no wrath left for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath has been fully poured out on Christ. There's none left for us who are in Christ. That's our hope. Our hope is that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, work in us. Help us to understand what you've called us to, to know your truth and your grace, to know your mercy and goodness, to know the sinfulness of sin. And that we would turn to you, our King, our God, our Savior, in repentance and faith all the days of our life. And continue to pray to you in the midst of a broken world, asking your kingdom to, be, to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.